welcome back. I hope you're all doing well out there. For those of us in MFA programs around the country, our semesters are quickly coming to a close. By the time the next episode of MFA Writers comes out in two weeks, we'll be enjoying our much-needed winter break. So congrats to all of you students. We've got a great episode today with Luke Larkin of the University of Montana, a wonderful discussion on craft and cross-genre writing. Luke's a great writer and just an all-around wonderful person to chat with. So thank you, Luke, and thank you to Diana Held, who requested this episode. If you've got an episode request, send it our way. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. Feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from listeners. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Finally, as always, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Luke Larkin. Luke earned his BA in creative writing at the University of Montana before entering UM's MFA program, where he is a second-year fiction student and editor-in-chief of Cutbank Magazine, the program's long-running literary magazine. While he studies fiction primarily, he also writes creative nonfiction and poetry. His work can be found in places like Pop Shot, Had, Baron Magazine, and others. Today, Luke has brought four short pieces to read for us. Thanks. So these first two are first in No Contact magazine. Just a quick shout out to those folks. This first one is Nature Cam. While watching a live stream of a bear pot salmon in a river, it occurs to me that nothing ends anymore. This time last year, I watched the same bear in the same river. Next year, I may watch a different bear, but I won't be able to tell the difference. If a bear falls in the forest and I'm not tuned in to see, does it only transmute into another bear? My mom has been reading the same crime novel for four years. The cover changes, but a woman is always murdered, then her body repurposed for the next go-around. I ask mom if this is just something that happens when you get older, that things don't stop happening. She shrugs. It's always happened this way, she says, and witnesses another murder. A bear dips her nose into a river and retrieves a body by its nape. A bear dips its paw into a river and swats out a salmon. That night, both the body and the salmon are on the news. The bear is not a suspect, but the salmon has been questioned. The bear is on live stream while a news anchor explains the correlation between depleted salmon populations and bodies in rivers. A reporter wades into the river to interview the bear. Without looking up from the water, the bear says, nothing ends anymore. And the salmon in her mouth adds, nothing ever has. The reporter is underwater. The reporter is a mile downstream. The camera did not catch his fall. This next one is called Trophy. In the small hours of the night, I find myself wanting a gun. Though I don't hunt, and I'm not particularly concerned for my safety. But let's not worry about that second bit. It's only that I'd like to acquaint myself with something like a mortal punctuation mark. I'd like to aim down sights and contemplate ending a goddamn sentence for once. The plot lost long ago between two antlers rattling around in a skull like a ball-bearing clapper of a bell that'll shatter its calcified dome and ring clear like the telephone my father answers 
when I call not to tell him anything more about me than what he already knows, and also that I think I want a gun. That's good, he says. I think of riding high on his shoulders back when he knew all there was to know about me. You should carry, he says. And the buck agrees while I aim. You should carry, it says. Carry and weigh me against a feather. The buck is lighter. I am heavier than the buck. The feather is heavier than the bell. I fire. It rings. Sorry, I say, and mean it. Absolution is a weighty thing, the buck says, as I tag him. And lighter than you can imagine. I cannot tell if he means it, but still I hoist him onto my shoulders. Still I carry him. But please remember that I don't hunt. It's just that I want a gun sometimes, to hold myself, to add weight. This is 63 deaths on Wyoming highways this year. What I want you to understand is that no road is remarkable until somebody's died on it. I mean, no offense to Jesus, but Golgotha's got nothing on the I-25. All that red pavement, all those white plywood crosses. Going to the sun is only as sublime as it is dangerous, because at any minute you could yank this steering wheel and send the two of us down into the pines, and every sucker on that red tour bus to therapy while we're at it. No, actually what I mean is this. You're only as safe as every other bastard on the road decides you are, and there's mercy in that. No, sorry, I mean this. You're going faster than they can lay pavement, a road runner out where there's no more road. There's nothing wrong with the joyride, but I want your headlights in the drive by nine, you hear me? Don't make me pull you out of crumpled steel on a highway you've just made remarkable. But I will pull you out, understand? I want you to understand that I'll pull you out. This last one is block party. Are you drinking? Take this. You're not too late. We're building bridges on the lawn tonight because some things have just gotten too far to ford. There's a row of chairs there on the shore where the spinsters bump babies on their knees by torchlight, and the barrel-chested old boys talk of times they left back on the other bank but wouldn't pay more than the number of teeth still stuck in their gums to return to. The rest of us wade into the deep grass catching crickets that sing songs we want so badly to remember, or maybe haven't been written yet. Here's one now. Slowly, cup your hands. That's it. There it goes, but don't fret. The whole neighborhood's out, and we're bound to lick the words at some point. Until then, we've got the verses we still know. And not one of us is a singer, but goddamn, when that chorus hits, it sounds like sweet grass in summer. Glasses knocked against glasses. A petty dropped from a bridge into a glacial lake wishing well, and everyone's swimming. Everyone's dancing. Luke, thanks for being here, and thanks for sharing those with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Yeah, it's really great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. I was excited to hear you read those pieces. I loved these pieces when I read them. And I got this sense as I was reading them that I was reading an author who was discovering something right along with the reader. Like I felt like you, the writer, were being surprised by the words as you wrote them. And that sense of discovery and not knowing, as Donald Barthelmay called it, made these pieces feel really mysterious and electric and alive when I read them. And that's something that I look for in literature. So first off, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Oh my gosh, thank you. That's incredibly keen and apt. And so I was going to ask, do you agree with that assessment of like what you're trying to do when you're writing these? Like, do you see writing as an act of exploration and discovery? Oh my God, absolutely. Yes. And I think that that absolutely applies to these pieces in particular. And for sure, I started... I have like 
maybe two dozen of these sorts of things now, kind of just knocking around in Google Docs. <laughs> they, all, they all sort of start the same way, is that I have... I have this notion of something, maybe an image, maybe just like a feeling or a thought, like nature cam. I was watching Fat Bear Week when Kootenai National Park watching bears. I was like, there's something very weird about thousands of people tuning in to watch bears just get fat. And it started from there. And then it started, I don't know, you, I, I guess I got into like this weird meditative state where I was thinking about that. And then that became missing murdered people became thinking about my mother, my mom and the crime novels she reads and what she gets out of that. If anything, I don't know. And then, yeah. So I think absolutely. They have this weird elliptical way of kind of unspooling and unfolding in ways that surprise me. And I guess I get to discover things as I write them. I get to discover what I'm writing about, I guess, which is, the most exciting part. And I think that leads into like another thing I was going to ask you, which is, you know, you mostly write fiction, but also nonfiction and poetry. And I was curious if you think of these pieces that you just read as fiction or nonfiction, or do you think that question is like kind of reductive, like trying to classify pieces into one genre or the other? Yeah. I don't know. Something, maybe something along the lines of reductive, but not, Reductive, but not unproductive, maybe, where these these actually started in, in a poetry workshop. And so I guess technically I set out to write prose poems, and instead I wrote weird, maybe they're prose poems, maybe they're weird nonfiction bits, maybe they're weird fiction bits. But yeah, I think to me, I guess I'm not really concerned with whether or not I'm writing fiction or nonfiction when I write these. And I guess to me, the two are sort of inextricably linked for me where I can't, I can't write fiction without also writing nonfiction, I suppose. And that might, that might be true for every writer. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think that's a particularly unique thing. I think a lot of writers are pulling for them from their own life, whether they're writing nonfiction or fiction, but it's interesting that you mentioned poetry because I feel like poets are completely fine with just like this blurred line between whether what they're writing is fictional or about themselves. But why do prose writers feel the need to classify it as one thing or the other? I don't know. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know either. <laughs> I talk to a lot of poets in the program and it seems like that's just a weird headspace that I guess poets are comfortable inhabiting. I feel like maybe with me personally as a prose writer, there is sort of a, a need or a compulsion to maybe put up a barrier where when I write fiction and when it's very obviously me writing fiction and this is coming from me, I do feel the compulsion to be like, Oh, this is, this is fiction. This isn't nonfiction. Don't read anything into it, which of course is totally a lie. And so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I guess I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, I I don't expect you to. <laughs> I don't get it myself, <laughs> but it's like an interesting thing that I find myself thinking about a lot. And you do tell, you know, you do describe yourself as a fiction writer who also writes nonfiction and poetry. So clearly there are times when you are writing something and thinking about it as a nonfiction piece or writing something and thinking about it as a fiction piece. And, you know, I mentioned Donald Barthelme. He had this whole idea of like not knowing when it came to fiction. Like when you sit down to write, you shouldn't know what the piece is about until you discover it during the act of writing it. But in general, 
nonfiction seems to be viewed a little differently. Like there's this idea that the writer comes to the piece with a question or a problem, and then the reader gets to watch that writer wrestle with that question on the page. So let's, for the purposes of argument, or for the purposes of discussion, I should say, <laughs> uh, let's say that sometimes you sit down, and you, you say, I'm going to write a fiction piece, or sometimes you sit down, and you say, I'm going to write a nonfiction piece. Do you find that you're able to be exploratory in the same way, no matter which genre you're writing? Or do you see differences in your process, depending on whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction? Oh, absolutely see differences, I think, or what you were saying initially about fiction. Yeah. I always think of Ursula K. Le Guin always says to that she like, she leaves room in her fiction. She doesn't, she says she doesn't want to know where she's going because then I don't know what's the fun in that. And I, I totally agree. And so, but yeah, it's absolutely different though. I think when I set out to write fiction, I am coming primarily from that exploratory point. I'll start with a notion or idea and I'll, I'll want to see where it takes me and I'll want to see what I can learn about myself or whatever I'm writing about, but I don't know. I don't know where I'll end up and that's part of the fun. But I think also when I write, when I write nonfiction, I almost have to sort of reverse engineer the problem where I'll have I'll have more of a definite idea, I think, of what I want to write about or what I think I want to write about. And then from there, it becomes less, it becomes less paving a road and more just untangling whatever the hell it is I'm thinking. And so the two processes of discovery, I guess, are different, but similar in many ways. I love that idea. I, I love that way you put that. Like with fiction, you're during the act of writing, trying to pave the road in front of you and figure out what the story is about and where it's going. But with nonfiction, you're coming at it with an idea of what it's about and you're trying to untangle that thing mm -hmm. and to like maybe see it more clearly. I love that. And not only do you, you experiment with fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, but you also told me that you like to experiment with writing outside of what people might call literary writing, right? So you told me that you've written hard genre, you've written pulp, horror, all of those things in this program, and that you're actually thinking about writing a YA novel for your thesis. So what drives these different interests and how do you decide what to write next? Yeah, I guess, I mean, starting from the beginning, I'm, I'm sort of inherently maybe skeptical of quote unquote literary as a genre. You put the air quotes around it, so I'm going to put yeah. the air quotes around it. <laughs> And that just that I don't know, I don't know how useful literary, whatever that means is to me as a descriptor. It's, I can, I can look at it, a book on a shelf and go, that's literary. I know that's literary. That's a literary book. If you were to ask me why, then it gets a little more dicey. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I could nail it down beyond, I don't know, it's character focused. It's, it doesn't. Uh, but then, yeah, you have genre that is also literary. And so, yeah, to me, it's less about writing. It's less about being concerned about whether or not I'm writing literary or genre fiction and more about just asking what either of those labels can do for me, where I'm, I'm interested in genre fiction because it gives me sort of 
it's like it's like buying buying Lego sets. I guess you you get you, you get the Western Lego set, you get the Romance Lego set, and it comes it all comes prepackaged with a bunch of pieces and parts that are you can decide how you want to build it, and it it gives you a lexicon and a in a language, I guess, to tell a story, which is to me maybe more interesting than whatever happens when you write literary fiction. I don't, I, I don't know what happens when you write literary fiction. It mystifies me. <laughs> you get really stressed out is what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, yeah, I write, I write genre fiction. There's a certain security. There's a built-in community. Maybe there's, there's a shared language of here's what I'm doing you already know on some level what I'm doing because that's part of the shared language of a genre, but also it's mine to toy with as I want. And, and so, but you already got all those shorthands built in. So as I start toying with it, we're kind of in that together. Well, speaking of the influence of communities, the university of Montana's program has a certain pedigree to it. You know, having been started 50 years ago by Richard Hugo, and since then, more than one Pulitzer winner has come out of that program. So how accommodating have your instructors been to you experimenting outside the literary form? Oh, my God. Incredibly accommodating. And I almost, I almost feel bad <laughs> about, about how accommodating they've been. Where I, won't, I haven't gone like crazy. I haven't showed them. I haven't pushed weird horror stuff in their face at every turn. But, but yeah, I, I'm thinking back to like last semester, I was like, I, I was in a workshop with Deborah Erling and I, I gave them this weird short story that was framed as a scientific research paper about mushrooms that develop language. And it was like very, very hard sci-fi. And then it turned into something else. And yeah, Deborah was like Deborah and the whole class were incredibly enthusiastic and totally on board with it. And then from there, that was sort of just my ticket to start goofing off. I guess <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think there is a certain pedigree here, but that hasn't discouraged me from getting a little pulpy with it, writing westerns or romances or whatnot. Yeah, well, I feel like being unbound and feeling like it's okay to goof around that just further ties into what we we're saying about writing as like something that's used to explore and discover right i mean if you're starting from a place of with like in which you have boundaries right and you have to write a certain way in order for it to be quote unquote good then you're already closing off all of these interests that could find their way into your writing right Absolutely. And yeah, I don't, I don't want to like downplay the literary aspect of the university because it's absolutely there. And I, I feel like most of what we do stems from that sort of tradition, but yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm very pleased and very fortunate in that the professors here seem more interested in what the literary genre can do for you in your writing. And if it, at the moment it stops doing whatever it is for you, they say, okay, go off and do something else, you know, use it as a, use it as a platform rather than constraints. Well, you went straight from undergrad into the MFA program and you told me that 
because of that, you're relatively young and emergent compared to your cohort. So are there other writers in the program who are as experimental as you are, or are you an outlier? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think there are. I think, again, it's a literary pedigree. People tend to lean literary, but I can I could list off names, probably more than one hand, of people who are also pushing boundaries and exploring and writing genre. I tend to hang out with a couple people in particular who are interested in commercial fiction, and I, I don't want to speak for them, but I feel like that that experience has been pretty accommodated here is yeah commercial fiction like what what is it about it that you want to write how can we help you study this how can we help you get there so you've said that your uh, professors have been really supportive but it sounds like you've also found like a community amongst the other students who are also supportive of this kind of unbound way of writing and exploring and discovering yeah absolutely i think part of it has just been I think, I think a lot of people, what I always heard about MFA programs is that you should probably be going into them with like a project or like a book you want to write, which is to me was sort of strange advice. And then I came into an MFA without a project or a book I want to write, not even totally sure I wanted to write fiction. And so from there, kind of just made it, I kind of just made that clear from the get go is that like, <laughs> I'm here to just mess around. And yeah, from that, it seems like everyone was sort of excited by that and on board and gave me, gave me the agency to do whatever, I guess, which I've been supremely grateful for. Another thing that stood out to me in these pieces was a real sense of place. Like I felt like the Northwestern landscapes and culture were present in each one. So how important and influential has that region of the U S been to you as a person and a writer? Oh, overwhelmingly. So I grew up, Primarily in Denver, and so right at the edge of the Rockies, but then I would spend most every summer with my grandparents up here in Montana and Columbia Falls. And so I have that sort of weird dual geographic citizenship where on the one hand, I'm very sort of ingrained in that, in like suburbia in the city. And on the other hand, I know, I know the other side of it. I know what it's like to to live in the Rocky mountains and the wilderness. And I don't know, I don't want to say wrangle with the landscape. I'm no, I'm no outdoorsman, but, <laughs> but it's, it's a scene that it's a scene that absolutely it looms wherever you are here in the Rocky mountain corridor, you know, you can always look to the West and see the Rockies or maybe you're in the heart of the Rockies. And so, yeah, the landscape kind of has a way of, either inserting itself into your narrative, whether you want it there or not, or being very noticeably and painfully absent from your narrative. And so as a, as a writer who grew up around here, it's something that it's something that always sort of manifests for better or worse is like the Rockies, the woods, the wildlife. And also, yeah, coming from a weird literary tradition of Missoula and Montana in general, there's always this, sort of discourse or dialogue between writers both living and dead. I think of anytime I write about place, I think of those that triplet of poems by oh man, who was it? It's like James Welch, Richard Hugo, and some other guy about it's like the only bar in Dixon and they they wax poetic about the only bar in Dixon and it was published in the New Yorker and everything. And then 
And then in my undergrad, I encountered um, a Montana poet, Heather Cahoon, who have, has a sort of a poem in response to that from a more native perspective where she starts like Dixon wasn't always known for its only bar. And she goes on before that, it was like the place where you would gather plums. And so I think that to make a long story short, <laughs> that, 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 that kind of discourse is sort of the microcosm of just the discussions that happen up here around land, around land usage, around sovereignty. And so you're always going to be talking about land, I think, in any story, whether you're in the Rockies or not. But being here and having that scene so so loudly played out and so apparent, it makes it makes your discussions of land a little more, I guess, thoughtful or careful and which is something I'm supremely grateful for. I think that's, that's a indispensable aspect of it. And then you also told me that you had the particular, but not unique experience of being a queer person raised Catholic and that that experience informs much of what you write. So I have to ask, in what ways do you see that experience showing up in your writing? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, from a formative experience, I was just listening to one of my cohort at a reading over Zoom last night, and she she was a religious studies major, and she just she said that the whole the whole Catholic religious Jewish tradition is just it's a tradition of storytelling, which I think is absolutely true. You know, as a young Catholic kid, you sit in mass once or twice a week, God forbid. <laughs> bored out of your mind and you're listening and the only thing you have to grasp onto are like the first second and gospel readings and so yeah it, it instills in you i guess an appreciation for storytelling if not storytelling as like a method of survival how do you see it showing up in your writing yeah as a queer person raised catholic it's sort of that weird dichotomy of clinging to these stories because they're more or less what raised me the bible the bible stories and then also trying to find a place within them. you I feel like most Catholic people raised Catholic carry with them that ever lingering sense of guilt and just struggling with it. And so it's not something that I'm ready to totally give up altogether, but, and so in lieu of giving it up and abandoning it, I've opted to sort of, yeah, try to find, try to orient myself within that tradition in a tradition that isn't necessarily welcoming of me, I guess, which is probably a little masochistic, but whatever. <laughs> but I imagine a wellspring for inspiration and sitting down in front of the blank page and just trying to untangle that as we yeah, said earlier. Right. Absolutely. And in many ways it's a salvage mission. It's why well, however many years of my life, most of my life was spent in this environment, learning these things that don't gel with the person I am and the person I'm becoming, but I don't want to cut them off altogether. What can I, what can I take from it? What can I, what can I salvage? I guess. Yeah. Well, I often refer to myself as a recovering Catholic, so <laughs> I, I completely understand what <laughs> you're talking about. Um, so you studied creative writing as an undergrad before doing the MFA. How old were you when you started writing? Like back growing up, going to mass, were you 
listening to those stories and going home and writing your own stories? Like, did you know, at what point did you know that this was something you wanted to pursue? Oh man, not at all. I was, I've always been an avid reader. That was just something instilled in me at an early age, but I think I didn't, I didn't really want to write seriously until probably my sophomore year of undergrad, where I was actually a, I was a marine biology major my freshman year in Hawaii. And then, yeah, I guess I sort of missed that literary discourse community or whatever. And I I was sort of incredibly lonely, had island fever, wasn't sure what I was doing, failing calculus. <laughs> so I sort of on a whim, I, I wrote this weird little short story. And then I was like, huh, that's, that's something maybe. And I sent it off to one single magazine that I knew, Firewords, and they picked it up. And I was like, well, holy shit, maybe I can, <laughs> maybe I can do this. Maybe I can make something of this. And so, yeah, the, they, they sent me the acceptance email on the same day I changed my major to English. And then the next year I transferred to the University of Montana. And so, yeah, it's relatively recent development, though I think I've probably had it in me for a while. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that story. And so then you transferred to the University of Montana. You focused on creative writing while you were there. And then when you graduated, you entered the MFA program, which is a two-year program that, according to the website, offers long winters, brilliant peers, a diverse and engaged faculty, excellent funding and community that lasts long after the program ends. And I want to go back and break down each one of those things <laughs> the website claims and hear what you Gladly. have to say. <laughs> but first, I want to hear about this poetry class that you took because you said you took a poetry workshop and it completely changed your writing. So can you tell us about that class and why it was so influential? Yes, absolutely. That was prosody with Keisha Kuiper's for all you listeners out there. Keisha is an incredible poet. She's an incredibly patient person. It was a class of mostly poets, but then a bunch of prose writers too. And so she had to sort of, (laughs) she handled it wonderfully and gracefully getting us prose writers involved. But yeah, I guess throughout the course of that class, I just became more acutely aware of writing on sort of a micro scale on if you know, if I, if I said before that fiction is paving a road forward, then I think this prosody class sort of made me think about every individual brick that I'm laying down and why I'm laying it down and how it works with all the other bricks that I've laid down before. And then maybe instead of just paving a road, getting from point A to B, fiction now in my mind is more of a, a sum of the parts I guess it's not, it's not something to be neither experienced nor built linearly. It's something that, yeah, is, is, it's a whole in each of the parts matter, which maybe is, I had not thought of it that way before I took a poetry class. And so now, yeah, now everything I write is sort of just an extended poem, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we we said before, right? Poets are not scared to like cross those boundaries between genres. So maybe that's what you truly are at heart is yeah. a prose poet. Oh man, you just don't know it yet. Dis- <laughs> discovering things about myself here. <laughs> so when you enter this program, you have to choose a track, right, between poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction. But would you say that the program encourages students to cross those boundaries, take classes in other tracks? 
Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, you have to commit to one, and then your thesis has to be one of them. I mean, you could probably you could probably get away with some hybridization stuff, but but yeah, absolutely. We we definitely encourage. They definitely encourage cross pollination. I guess <laughs> multiple professors, if not all of my professors, have expressed the idea that you're not you're not nearly as good as you think you are in any particular genre until you've experienced and tried the other genres where they each they each have something to offer to the to the rest and you're you're incomplete if you haven't at least tried which is i think i think that's a fabulous ethos and something that they definitely encourage in our class taking and so what's the sentiment among the students like are other students having the same experience with, as you where they're taking classes in other genres and coming out of it with a new outlook, you think? Yeah, I would hope so. From what I, of course, I'm in dialogue with them and I talk to them and it seems like that that is the general outlook. I mean, yeah, I feel like I came out of that prosody poetry class entirely new and I know many of my prose writers feel the same about it. Uh, if not entirely new, then definitely having learned something. <laughs> And yeah, it, it's also, it's not something that you're forced to do if you don't want to. If you want to stick to just fiction, the classes are there and nobody's nobody's holding your feet to the fire if you really, truly don't want to do it. All right. So let's go back to that list of attributes that are, it's on the front page of the MFA oh program <laughs> website. Long winters, brilliant peers, a diverse and engaged faculty, excellent funding and community that lasts long after the program ends. So we've talked a bit already about your brilliant peers. Um, Would you say that there's a strong sense of community amongst those peers? Have you been able to foster relationships that you think will outlast the program? Yes, absolutely. I think it has been, we were slow to start and it has been somewhat difficult given the, given the circumstances of it. But yeah, this past, we, we were already sort of, familiar and good natured with to each other within the first year. And then this past summer as the weather lightened up and as more opportunities to, to just gather and be outside opened up, it's been like, yeah, everyone's sort of playing catch up. We're, we're, we're getting good to know each other and we're getting to know a year's worth of each other in a very short amount of time. But even before that, we were already pretty chummy, I'd say. And so, yeah, I think it's a very, it's an accepting program and it's a open and friendly program, I would say. And so as things have kind of opened up a bit more, are people within the cohort like spending time with each other outside of classes, like going to events around town, anything like that? Yes, absolutely. That's kind of part of the part of the beauty of Missoula is that it's absolutely accommodating to that sort of thing. And so yeah, we have like we have second one readings that feature second years we have an infinite number of hikes and lakes and outdoor activities outside and so all summer we've been connecting and gathering and floating the river through town and yeah when you described missoula to me in your email it just made me incredibly jealous and now i'm getting jealous (laughs) all over again (laughs) because that sounds amazing um all right so we've also talked about the faculty a bit already but would you agree that there is a strong level of diversity in the faculty? Yeah, I think they're, they're an incredibly diverse array of perspectives and traditions and 
Actually, yeah, I think I would come down on the side that it is it is diverse. It is Montana. It is predominantly white, Caucasian, straight. But for the for the area, for the program, for what we're for what we're doing, I would say that I've been entirely satisfied with how diverse it is. We have Boris, who is a nonfiction fiction Russian immigrant, family of Russian immigrants, is who's great. Sean Hell is a brilliant poet who writes about race and family and a ton of other things. Keisha is a a queer poet. I don't want to say it. I don't want to say queer poet. She's a poet who is queer and also writes about queer things. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then we had Deborah who is who just actually just retired, but she was she was a great native professor who brought that sort of tradition and that mindset to the program and and now we have Emily Ruskovich, who's an incredible literary professor who's based in based in Idaho and in Montana. And so she absolutely gels with the scene and with the program. And she's been a wonderful addition. Well, it sounds great. And I hope I hope I did justice to each of those people. I don't I don't mean to essentialize. Yeah, fair. That's fair. that's who's here. Yeah. And then it says that the faculty is engaged. So would you, do you, have you felt like the, you've been engaged with the faculty? They're available to you inside and outside of class? Like you've had some good mentorship? Oh my gosh, absolutely, yes. They, each of them does their absolute damnedest to make themselves available to any of us. I could, I don't want to speak for Keicha, but I'm totally confident in my, in my ability to email her right now and ask for a meeting and she'd do her best to set one up ASAP. I know, I know plenty of people have met with Ketchup while like hiking and whatnot, which is great. But yeah, they, they're incredibly enthusiastic, incredibly accommodating. And they just, yeah, they want, they want to do their best by you, I think is the best way to put it, whatever that means to each of them. Right. And then also according to the website, each student receives a one-year one-on-one mentorship with a faculty member that results in the thesis. So have you started that process yet? I have not yet. It's coming up. It is absolutely on the horizon. (laughs) But well, yes and no. Sort of to also add on to my last answer is they're they're accommodating almost to the point where it's not even their job anymore. <laughs> I'm uh, next semester. I'm set up to take a, a young adult independent study with um, Aaron Saldine, who is not actually a graduate professor. She's an undergraduate professor, but me and another student expressed that we would love to study young adult literature and she was there. And so we hit her up and she's like, absolutely. I'll do that for you. And so I think that's probably going to be my thesis. And so in a sense, I maybe have started thinking about it at least, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it is, it is a semester slash year long one-on-one mentorship where they'll, they'll guide you through what your thesis is going to look like. You need like 80 pages to present and they, yeah, they work with you one-on-one to get it done. All right. So the next one is funding. And from what I can tell, the program is partially funded, which means not all students get funding it seems half of the students maybe receive teaching assistantships and one student each year gets a fellowship that provides funding without teaching. There also seems to be various other scholarships that provide some support without covering tuition. Do you receive funding at the University of Montana? I do, yes. So I came in with a teaching fellowship and so I was teaching 
I was teaching RIP 101, writing 101 last semester, all on my lonesome. And that's, that's where I got my stipend from. This semester, I'm of course doing, I'm doing, I'm editor in chief of Cut Bank, which is where my stipend comes from this semester. And so that, that is a paid position and I am funded through that. And yeah, I would say half is probably a fair number. I think maybe we have, I'm trying to think, I wonder if it was more than half when I entered. But yeah, I think half is a fair number. And then, like you said, there, there are various opportunities to secure money. We have the Truman Capote Scholarship, which is a fully funded position. And then there's also like a number of offshoots from that scholarship that where you don't get full funding, but you get a certain sum of money as part of as a Truman Capote Fellowship. And then there's also just a ton of other opportunities through either the program or the university to to get your to to get your tuition paid, where I know maybe two or three people are working in the university's writing center right now, which is a university program that accommodates their class schedule and accommodates them as students, and from what I hear, pays pretty fairly. I don't want to, <laughs> but yeah, there's. I wish I wish there was more funding, but what there is is the fac- faculty is intent on trying to get you money in some form and making it work for you. So what's your workload look like and how much are you getting paid? And do you feel like it's enough money to live comfortably there in Missoula? Yeah. So speaking from a last year's experience as a TA, the workload was pretty, it was doable. Absolutely. It, it was interesting because like I said, like, you, you teach a writing 101 class by yourself. You don't have like a professor there. You're not aiding anybody. You're just teaching the class, <laughs> which is daunting in many respects. But also um, Aaron Wecker, who is the, cannot remember her formal title, but she's the person who coordinates all that. And she is, just as anybody else, is exhaustive in her striving to make you comfortable with teaching and so you get you get a standard curriculum. You're kind of free to mess with it as you please. It's a it's a respectable, totally manageable amount of work, I would say. And then now, as editor in chief of Cup Bank, it's a very different and more particular load of work that I'm still sort of figuring out, but making the best of it. And I have no complaints on that end. So I, I have to ask because people applying are probably going to want to know, and I couldn't find it on the website. How much are they paying you for a teaching assistantship or the cut bank position? Yeah. So I'm pretty sure it's a little more than $1,200 a month. We get 600 and then some every two weeks, which again, I wish, I wish it was more. It's not, it's not the most amount of money, but living in Missoula is absolutely livable Depending on your living situation, we're, we're kind of undergoing a weird housing crisis right now, especially with the pandemic, where everyone is moving to Missoula, and so it, it can it can be difficult to find housing. And when you do find housing, it is maybe a little steep. But also, the university provides plenty of student housing if that's a route you want to opt for. And so, yeah, in a nutshell, twelve hundred plus is not a fabulous amount of money, but I've absolutely made it work and I have been very comfortable. 
And I assume that that 1200 is just for the school year. So it's like nine or 10 months out of the year that you get paid or is it all year 12 months? Um, it's not over the summer, but other than that, it goes, it, yeah, it goes through winter break. That's pretty typical. And really like 1200 a month, I'd say is probably average for like MFA program funding. So I imagine like living in Missoula, it actually goes further than a lot of places where you might get, be getting paid $1,200 a month. Okay. So the last one on the list is long winters. So let's talk a little bit more about <laughs> Missoula. What's it like living there and just how brutal are these winters? Uh, I guess it can be encapsulated by, we had this writer, Kevin Canty, who used to teach at the program and he always used to say that Missoula summer is the lollipop that you savor all year. <laughs> and that that sure is true <laughs> because as, as soon as summer and autumn is over, yeah, we're, we're sort of hunkering down. And the upside of it is that there are they're long, they're dark, they're not that cold actually. Missoula's pretty temperate. That's a lot of a, I hear a lot of people dreading the winter when they first come here. I lived in Denver first, and then Denver to here, there's almost like no difference. And so they're temp- they're pretty they're 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 livable they're survivable you'll get through it I promise <laughs> but yeah it it also helps immensely if you're an outdoor person just because the the range and quantity of outdoor activities in Missoula is almost overwhelming you could go on a new hike every day of the year I'm sure and experience something you haven't before and so yeah I'm. Thankfully, I'm a snowboarder, and so <laughs> as soon as when winter hits, I have something to do. But yeah, I know it has been. They they, they really they tell you long winters, maybe as a little bit of a warning. <laughs> they are they are long, they are dark, they are cold. But there's, I'd say there's plenty of community and things to do to get you through it. Also, if you're a winter person, right up your alley. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's not a negative for you. <laughs> I guess some people are. I don't know who they are, but I guess some of them there there are winter people out there, I suppose. <laughs> it's also yeah, it's also just like gorgeous up here. Like even when it's dark and cold, I almost can't complain because we're flanked on all sides by foothills and mountains and they get their nice sugar coating of snow and you step outside and you're like Yeah, it's maybe below freezing this week, but it's pretty. <laughs> so. Well, you're selling me. I'm going to be one of those uh, migratory people who flocks to Missoula here as soon as I graduate from <laughs> my program, I think. <laughs> We'd love to have you. All right. So I also want to talk about a couple of publications you're a part of. We've mentioned Cut Bank a little bit already. They're the literary magazine of the University of Montana. You are the editor-in-chief. So tell us about that magazine and your experience editing it. Yeah. So Cut Bank is... Again, the department's long-running graduate literary magazine uh, instated in, what was it, 1973 by Richard Hugo, James Welch, that golden bunch of bros. (laughs) And we've been been running ever since. And so we publish mainly literary fiction, which, as we've already talked about with me, I have an interesting relationship with, so... As an editor, I'm not totally married to that. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's it's a total pleasure and a total learning opportunity. And it is it's run it is run entirely by the graduate students. The faculty has little to no 
meddling in it. It's, it is what we make of it for better or worse, often for the better. And it's just a fun time. I've every day I read, I read incredible pieces by people who are way out of my league and I wake (laughs) up and go, Oh my God, I'm put in charge of this. (laughs) It's absolutely a community thing. I could not do it alone. I'm immensely grateful to be doing it at all. Well, you mentioned it as a learning experience. So what have you learned like from a writing perspective, like has your writing or revising or editing practices changed at all from like this experience with cut bank? Yes, absolutely. Maybe not in any immediately tangible ways, but just as informing my ethos as a writer and as an editor and as a person who submits to literary magazines as a literary citizen, I guess <laughs> it's been it's been incredibly informative and encouraging. Even where, yeah, you get to see the other you get to see the other side of the magazine that you're submitting to, and it's on one hand incredibly mystical, on the other hand incredibly generous and encouraging. And I'm always grateful for the for the opportunity to just read people's stories and to be the one reading them if not first, one of the first. And I learned something about writing from every story I read. And finally, there's Unstomatic, a yeah. mag of tiny prose, poetry, and visual art that you describe as your labor of love. So first off, did I pronounce that right? Yes, you got it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about that project and how it got started. Yeah, so that was sort of started on a whim. Maybe it was a little bit of a joke. (laughs) I was an undergrad with a couple of people who were not necessarily in my program, but who I was friends with. And I don't know, I was toying around with the idea of just a place to publish fiction I like and poetry I like, and as as you do when you're starting a literary magazine. And I don't know, we looked to we took we looked to the Ray Bradbury model of starting a literary magazine and filling it with your own writing until yeah. somebody catches on and starts reading it. <laughs> and then yeah, once once it did sort of catch on and we got a little bit of a following, it just took off. And so yeah, it's absolutely a labor of love. Does not make a profit ever, <laughs> as literary magazines are rarely do. Yeah. But yeah, it's something I that. I and my two friends sort of run in our free time as just a venue to to combine tiny prose and tiny poetry with visual art and see what comes of it. The whole idea was sort of started as like instamatic, the the instant photo- photography thing, and where you would have you would have a photo on one side and then a little note on the other side, and so that's kind of the theme of the whole thing is photo in a note. So you're choosing pieces of prose or poetry to publish. And then you're pairing those with like visual art that people are also submitting to the magazine. Yes. It's a very serendipitous process we've found (laughs) where, yeah, it, it just sort of happens almost every time that there's always an outstanding piece of poetry or prose. And there's always an outstanding piece of visual art and they kind of just find each other in our inbox and we're like, perfect, great. And if they don't, if we don't have a great pairing, then we commission a pairing from one side or the other. We'll ask an artist to make something or we'll ask a writer to write something for the other side of it. 
before we wrap up, I want to give you the last word. And what I usually ask guests is to tell us one thing they think their program does really well and one thing they think the program could improve on. Oh, man. Yeah, that double-edged sword. <laughs> I've, already, I've, been, I've already talked about so many things the program does well. It's a great location. It's a great community. It's a great cohort of writers and professors who, I'm, who I have full confidence in and I'm incredibly grateful to be learning from. Really, location cannot be beat. I'm almost hesitant to say that because Missoula sort of is Montana's best kept secret. <laughs> but it is what it is. In terms of things we could do better, I'm almost hesitant to say it because it's maybe not the fault of the program itself. But we do have, we are sort of limited in the number of professors and our class offering right now is a little scant because Again, because of the pandemic and because COVID and because the university had like this weird hiring freeze for a long time when the pandemic started. And so on one hand, we are a little understaffed at the moment, which you can feel a little bit, but the professors are more than determined to make up for it in their own inexhaustive, inexhaustible efforts. And it is something that I do see changing very soon. Well, I mean, it sounds like the professors that are there are giving you lots of time, uh, putting a lot of energy into helping the students that are there. And hopefully that's something that gets better once the budget increases after all this is over. Yes. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Luke, I really appreciate you stopping by for sharing your pieces with me and with us. And um I really love talking process with you because I feel like in a lot of ways you're doing something that I'm constantly trying to get better at. So I really appreciated talking to you about this stuff. Thanks for stopping by. Yes, absolutely. Likewise. I learned a lot about myself here too. (laughs) For that, I'm eternally grateful. Thanks for having me. I'm honored. 